It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. About half of the American population is under age 35 and disproportionately minority and immigrant. The millennial generation is ushering in racial diversity and political parties are trying to keep up, working to appeal to a set of Americans who see things differently. Chuck Rocha runs a political consulting firm. The new American majority, the new young people of color who are very multicultural, they don't really care for the Republican Party whatsoever. They're not sold on the Democratic Party either. And the problem with both parties is that none of us go and talk to them. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Institute Symposium on the State of Race in America, held in May 2018. America's young voters are different than older generations in many ways. They consume news and information through apps rather than newspapers. The movements they support, like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and Never Again, were created from the bottom up with a hashtag. Movements of previous eras were more top-down with trailblazers like Martin Luther King leading the charge. With the midterms on the horizon, how can political parties increase turnout, which is historically low for minority groups? Today's conversation includes Chuck Rocha, who you heard at the top of the show. He was a senior advisor on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Joining him are Irene Bueno, Camilla Prince, and David Brooks. Bueno is co-founder of the civil and human rights organization Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Camilla Prince is the national director of African American Engagement for the Republican National Committee. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and an executive director at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation is led by Juan Williams, a political analyst for Fox News. Here's Williams. What we want to talk about here is politics and race. So, Chuck, let's just start right away. And by the way, to the audience, all of you are going to be participating in this after we go back and forth for about half an hour. It's going to be your questions for the next 15 minutes or so. So please have your thoughts in mind for pointed questions to get the most out of uh, the valuable time for these people here. But, Chuck, I was thinking in terms of this era, the Trump era, and there's so many appeals on a racial basis, so many winks and nods. This very morning we wake up to the news about the NFL and kneeling, and we see celebrations at the White House as if they've won something. And so this makes me think, exactly how does a political pro see appeals based on race playing a role in our politics today? It's a unique time in America, and I occupy a unique space, and one thank you for recognizing that, of the way we look at race in politics. My firm is one of the largest person of color-owned political consulting firms in the country. 100% of my staff are immigrants and children of first-generation immigrants. So, So we look at the world through a different lens to Juan's point. That's where he's wanting me to go this morning, and I will go there. But I wanted to set the stage that politics is a very emotional thing that we've gotten away from for years, but now we've brought it back in, some would say, a good way or a bad way. And we draw off that emotion to try to motivate people to interact. I said my firm is made up of immigrants and children of immigrants. Uh, Luis is here from my staff in the back of the room with the camera. Luis was born in Mexico. Luis is a DACA recipient. Uh, Luis works for me. Because, he, because President Obama gave him that status 
through executive order. It wasn't done through Congress. Now, I lay that groundwork to say to your point is that we hear, you hear commentators on TV talk about a dog whistle or talk about whistling to one base or the other. What I see in the field, and we work in campaigns all over the country. Uh, I was a senior advisor for Bernie Sanders for 13 months and got to work in every state. But my first race was Ann Richards back in the early 90s in Texas where I grew up. And a lot have changed since the day when Ann ran as a Democrat, right? Uh, we talked about race, and, and, and Ann talked about race, but we talk about it in a different way now. And we've talked about it now where it's moved to an uglier, a darker place, a darker place to where when you have 46% of the electorate that's not participating, you try to find a way to make sure that the ones who are showing up are showing up and that are ravenous to vote or ravenous to share information on the Internet or ravenous to share good news or fake news. And so you see both sides, and I would blame myself on the left as much because I use the rhetoric or the policy positions of Donald Trump or Republicans who I think are anti-immigrant uh, in, to motivate immigrants, to motivate brown, black, Asian people to go vote, to say there's a, your vote matters and it matters because of this, and I'll draw a contrast, right? And sometimes I find myself in the evenings worrying that I'm fighting into the same partisan politics as I accuse the right of doing because I'm using something that I'm adamantly going to always fight against, which is, is racism or, or something that I perceive as racism, to motivate a young black or brown man or a young black, brown, or Asian woman to say, we need to have a representative government. And if you want to have a government that represents every aspect of what our country is, your voice needs to be heard, and you need to vote, or you're going to get this. And I paint them a picture of Donald Trump. It's very interesting. So, Camila Prince, when you hear Chuck talk in this way about race and understanding that levers are being pushed, the question becomes, what's the Republican Party doing differently, especially this time around as we go into the midterms with President Trump? Um, one, we have to stop painting the picture and allowing people, I should say, to paint the picture that we are the party that's racist. Um, that's just not true. The, there's no facts tied to that. Um, we brought up Donald Trump, and yes, he is for legal immigration. So that's not being against immigrants. That's being for participate in the process, the way the process has been developed. Um, if we need to look at moder modifying or changing the process, then that's, there's a process for that. But to say that he's racist because he's for legal immigration is just not right. Um, and then I think on the second part, when you go back to looking at talking to people of color and getting them excited and motivated, you do have to do that. I think it's important. I, I, I believe in participation. I believe in civics. I believe that that's what our country was founded on. But I think um, on the Republican side, we have to take time to talk to people. We have to take time to stop just talking policy level issues up here, but really start to relate to people. I think when you look at our issues and our stance on the issues, especially in the black community and minority communities, we actually connect more. We want the same things. And when you look at immigrants, again, we, we want the, the to, to use the phrase, but to, we want to make America great again. We want to really build up our communities. And, and so I think as Republicans, we need to just go back and, and make sure that we're talking to all communities. Thanks. So Irene Bueno, when we hear this conversation, so much of it is about black, white, Latino. Mm -hmm. And the question is then, how do you engage in terms of race and the Asian community? 
Well, I think um, when we talked, I said that Asian Americans have been around, but we have not been on the radar screen in terms of political parties and candidates. But I believe now, not just because it's May is Asian American Heritage Month, but I think Asian Americans um, are, and Pacific Islanders, AAPIs, are really having their moment. There's 20 million Asian Americans in this country, and generally they have resided in the western part of the country. But now we see them in states like Nevada, Virginia, Georgia, Arizona. So we see them in the red and purple states. So we see that they are really having their moment. They also um, are gettable. Asian Americans may register more uh, evenly between the different parties and independents. And in the last, this last round, they voted primarily Democratic. But they do look at who talks to them, who invests in their community, who hires Asian Americans to come out and talk to them, who invests in, in language um, uh, materials. 59% of Asian Americans are foreign-born. And 21% of them get their news from ethnic news. So it's really important if candidates, campaigns, parties want to reach out to the Asian American community, they need to have investments, have people that look like me be on their campaigns in order to get their votes. David, uh, I was struck by listening to Alexis's presentation in the kind of psychological aspect, so much subconscious even as opposed to conscious going on in our minds with regard to race and I, as a regular reader of your column, I think you're interested in psychology as well. And I wondered how you might react to what she said. Yeah, I mean, uh, she mentioned the statistic that the human mind can process 11 million pieces of information a minute and 40 are conscious. So the rest is unconscious. So most of our awareness is unconscious. So what really matters is how you prime that. And in politics, it seems to me the crucial thing is do you prime it with an abundance mentality or a scarcity mentality? And if you have a scarcity mentality, then you see life as zero-sum, group against group. Uh, and if you have a scarcity mentality, you're more likely to feel under siege. You're more likely to feel we should revert to group uh, and that other groups are threatening to our group. And it seems to me, frankly, I'm a conservative, um, but I think what Donald Trump has, he's a master of friend-enemy distinctions, of arousing the scarcity mentality, uh, arousing a sense of threat. Uh, and he has told the narrative. And to me, what's most important about any political campaign is what narrative do they tell? And in my view, he's told an American narrative which is the good, honest people of America are, are under threat from outsiders, whether it's foreigners, Muslims, coastal elites. And to me, that's not been the traditional American narrative. That's the traditional Russian narrative, actually. Uh, but he told that narrative, and it appealed to a lot of people. Uh, and uh, on the right, mostly, but also on the left, that, that scarcity mentality, that sense of zero-sum struggle, uh, unleashes a lot of, to me, poisonous uh, attitudes. So it exacerbates racial tensions in the society. Yeah, well, we see it in Project Implicit, both evolutionarily and culturally. We just see how deep it is, and that's what Alexis was talking about. And so we have an extra burden to be able, just aware of that reality and counter it. And some politicians do counter it, and some pretty conservative politicians have countered it. So George W. Bush did a decent job. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, in my view, a lot of the politicians primarily the president, is not only not countering our implicit biases, but inflaming them. Well, it's, it's interesting because when you are, you know, I was struck by what Alexis had to say about, for example, you know, this young white man who wants to be liked when he meets you versus the young black woman who wants to be respected and treated as a serious person when she, and so the way that they interact right from the start seems to be 
difficult. It's as if they can't even meet each other for a first time. But what does that mean when it comes to our politics? What does it mean when it comes to speaking to each other about the narrative, about who we are as Americans, where we're going as Americans? And I'm just going to throw this up as a jump ball. Anybody can jump in on this. I think if you're talking about the electorate, so you have to split up America in different categories if you're talking about voting or just talking about race in my world. Because, and this is part of the problem with the Republicans and the Democrats, to be honest, is that you have this group of older people of color who've come of age in an America that's changed a lot. And they're very steadfast in the way that they vote. So older black, older Latinos, even older Asian Americans have fallen in line with the Democrats for years. They've, they've aligned with them for policies and for things that, uh, that help them. And they probably did exactly what they should have been doing for a party that was doing the most for them. But I would have a big caveat, is that uh, America, and I've learned a lot of this through the work we did with Bernie, which kind of reinvigorated me of, of the old Mexican from Texas who thought there were things were all going to be one way. The new American majority, the new young people of color who are very multicultural, who look at race through a much different lens than their parents and their grandparents, are exactly the jump ball. They don't really care for the Republican Party whatsoever. But they're not... They're not sold on the Democratic Party either. And the problem with both parties is that none of us go and talk to them. Right. We don't talk to them because they're not a prime voter. They're not part of an equation through modeling that we do in algorithms every single day on every piece of data that every one of you have on your computer or anywhere else to evaluate if you're going to be a voter because it's become the lowest sum uh, uh, equation. Right? And so if you're not part of the people who we know are that 52% who always vote or who may meet an electable model of a voter then you're eliminated out of the system. We don't talk to you about what the Republicans stand for. We don't talk to you about what the Democrats stand for. So you have this class of young people of color who are coming of age that nobody's talking to, so they're talking to each other, they're sharing peer-to-peer -peer communications, some of which is factually based, but some of which is just not. But they do see uh, to what Mr. Cohen had said about what happens at Starbucks. They see what happens now because everybody's got a mobile phone when somebody's choked out and killed in the streets of New York City. They see what's happening that's been happening for a long time, but now are captured on a cell phone, and then they're deciphering that, but neither one of the parties are addressing it. The Republicans are scared, too, for their own reasons, and the Democrats don't think that that voter's ever going to show up, so we don't talk to them either, and that's the real problem with the race in America today. Well, this, this speaks to what you were talking okay. about, because then, well... If I want to speak to mm -hmm. Asian voters, mm -hmm. you said I've got to invest in Asian media. Mm -hmm. I think you told me that. Yeah, one of the um, but what it, let's go to Chuck's point. Yeah. Are there assumptions being made by the political campaigns that, you know what, Asians aren't a large group in the society, aren't a large percentage of the voters, not worth my dollars to invest to speak to your voters? Yeah, and, I, you know, it's, it's hard in the AAPI community. We don't have a common language. We have, you know, we come from 20 different countries, diverse backgrounds, diverse histories, diverse experiences with politics. So you can't just come out, you know, not just Spanish, and we can hit everyone. You have to talk to the groups differently. So it takes more in terms of investment. But at the same time, if you are in those states, like us, you know, Senator Cortez Mastos or Senator Harry Reid or Governor Northam, if you invest in those communities, um, not just media, but like I said, having campaign staff that look like you, and at different levels, you can have... We have millennials who are fellows on campaigns because they can talk to people who have not been spoken to in the language they can understand. So an investment does go a long way. Hey, by the way, Chuck, you were saying young people. What is the age group you're talking about? So 18 to 34 or so? 
normally the break is in every campaign is a little bit different, but if on average, when I'm looking at modeling data, it's usually around 35. You want to jump in? Yeah, just, I spent a couple months traveling around the campuses asking people under, well, 25 about power structures. And when I think of a social movement in my generation, it was usually an organized group of people, hierarchically structured, led by a famous person. So it was Martin Luther King, it was Ralph Nader, it was Ronald Reagan. But when, you asked, when I asked all these students, what are the power structures you believe in, none of the power structures that they really believe in have a famous person at the top. Uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. And if a, a person tries to become the famous person, they say, no, we don't want that famous person. <laughs> they want a radically decentralized network of people led by people who look like themselves or led, frankly, by themselves because the level of social distrust is so small. And so in these conversations, it inevitably turned into a conversation of how do we have a radically decentralized movement that still has some cohesion where you can control the narrative? And how do you combine old power and new power? And that, that to me, is the big challenge. I have a friend, a friend named Henry Timms who created this thing, Giving Tuesday, where you give money away. And he basically created a meme Giving, we should give money away on Tuesday of that post-Thanksgiving week. And then he said he has local chapters, uh, and then they can take it and run with it as they will. And then, but then you have the problem of how do you organize something like that. So there's another group in the UK which is about huddles. After a, a labor MP was shot and killed, they created a community group. And you get together and you host a dinner party in your group, and the people who organized it said, send us a photo of your group so we, so we can put it on social media. And the, the, they wanted the photos not to put on social media, but as quality control. They studied each photo. What's the mix of people in the room? How dynamic does it look? It was their effort to get some control over their radically decentralized movement. And that's going to be a problem, I think, for political parties in the coming year. Wow, that was interesting. I mean, so you have, I mean, because, you know, as I write history, I often write biography about leaders who inspire, organize, build structures that bring people in. And you're suggesting that in this era, as we're considering race, diversity, inclusion, that people don't want the leader and don't want the structure. So, of course, like what comes to mind is Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, hashtag me too. And the criticism oftentimes is that they don't have a leader. What do these people want? You know, what is the goal? Why don't they can't articulate? The, the, the NFL players would be picked on for saying, well, what is it that you want? What is it that you're standing up for? You know, you know, and then people would say, well, these people are just out there protesting. They don't, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, but they, somehow they, they have, they're finding ways to build some structure, an agenda into that decentralized network. I think BLM has done a pretty decent job. The gun movement, frankly, has done a decent job of that. And you don't know, like, who's the leader of the gun movement? I mean, is it David Hogg? I don't, there is no leader. You mean the anti-gun? The anti-gun. Gun control. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Camille? Uh, but but, but it's, you have to do it bottom-up. You've got to do it surreptitiously. It's a much tougher organizational challenge than having some man or woman at the top saying, this is what we believe. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Later this summer, in July and August, we're doubling the number of episodes we drop. Expect two new episodes each week that feature conversations from the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival runs from June 21st through the 30th in Aspen, Colorado. More listening is coming to your earbuds later this summer. Don't miss it! Now back to today's conversation about politics and race. 
Here's moderator Juan Williams. So Camille, I'm thinking at the moment that for Republicans, Donald Trump is the leader. And I wonder how the young people have that experience that David's talking about saying, well, you know, this is us. It's not the leader. Well, I think you have both going on right now because I I do agree that you have the older generation that is used to certain ways and and having that older leader. And I agree, like we see it, that the younger generation is kind of just doing their own thing and how do you connect with them? And then how once you've connected with them, do you bring them in? And and so for us, it's really just taking the time to go back and talk to people and, and finding these movements that they want to get involved in. And so what are the, some of the conservative movements that we find that people are, are, are connecting to? And, and so I know you talked about the NFL a little bit earlier, but you also had some younger people that actually surprisingly believe that, um, that you know, that we should stand um, for the, the Pledge of Allegiance and things like that. So in the national anthem. So you know, it, it is the social in that they're, they're finding these niches. And so for us, it's helping them connect with some of the conservative messaging. You know, one of the things that strikes me about politics these days is targeting and how you identify people and then appeal to them based on, uh, I was having a conversation with uh, Brett Perkins, who works for Comcast here, and he's telling me, you know, he's looking at his Facebook page and he can see which advertisers are bought into him, how he is categorized in terms of his political sympathies, his age, his thoughts. Uh, and I imagine, Chuck, political strategists buy into just that kind, same kind of analytics. Let me draw you a picture this way, is that most of the parties, most of the super PACs, and people who do communications in politics spend between 65 to be generous and 85% of all their money on network TV or buying TV commercials. And most of the parties spend their money communicating to those people who do that. Why do we do that? Why do we still spend so much money, even though our lanes of communications have changed? Because that 46% of America who actually goes out and votes consumes the majority of their information via television, right? Uh, They're like me. They're old. Even old brown people like me are old. Old meeting, for all of you, over 35. Remember the number, over 35. That's what I was after. When I come home every day from my long day at my firm, I will sit down in a big chair and I will turn on a large television. I will fix me a glass of tea or a glass of bourbon, all depending on how bad my day was. <laughs> and I will watch MSNBC, Fox News, or I will watch the Washington Nationals if they're playing baseball. And everything is given to me. I'm on my phone. I'm reading whatever news I'm reading from the newspaper normally on my phone, watching TV and watching a baseball game. So that's I'm the prime voter. Now, I'll take you back to where I started the conversation of my eight full-time staffers who are all brown or black, all immigrants or children of immigrants under the age of 30. Now, let me tell you a quick survey that I do when I pitch people about why they should hire brown consultants. Is I say, I consume things, and you're only talking to me and none of these young, beautiful people. None of them, none of them own a television, <laughs> A, which is beyond me. Right. <laughs> I can't see my damn computer, and they all watch on their computer. <laughs> they have never seen a landline, much less have a landline, right? <laughs> I remember my mamaw's party line. That's how old I am. And they not only have do they not read a newspaper, I found out two weeks ago, one, they don't know where to go buy a newspaper, which bothers <laughs> to me, right? So how... You know, if, David is in practice. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have the perfect message, and we figure out how to fix all of these problems, but we've not changed the way that we deliver that message to these people, they're never hearing it, to your point. of It's very 
fractured. But then we're actually spending a lot of money that never gets to the exact people that are the next generation of who these leaders will be. And none of those people, you know, I was having lunch this week with my friend L, who's sitting here in the second row, and we talked about the room where it happens. How do we get in the room where it happens? Well, not, I'm the only brown or black person normally in the room where it happens. And these young people whose ideas and thoughts about politics are so dramatically different than mine, they're never in the room. And they're never talked to in a level, to your point of, I want to be liked or I want to be respected, to find out how they're talking. That's why our firm is better, is Luis and Melissa and people in my firm. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool, let's do it. And they've got a great boss who's like, uh-huh, right. Like, I don't, I don't understand this, but if this is the way that they're doing it, let's do it that way. So, Camila, does that concern you that, you know, this is a generation, you know, not reading the paper, they're not watching, they, watch, they get information, but it's on, on a mobile TV, device. Right. Right. It's on the mobile device. It's on Snapchat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So what are you thinking? How do you reach especially a more diverse audience in, in the way that Chuck was describing his frustration there? I think Chuck is right, though. It is bringing in those younger people and letting them have a voice. Um, it, it's making sure, like, especially, you know, for candidates, it's making sure that, you know, yes, you always have interns, but the interns aren't just running mail, but you're allowing them to be a part of the conversation in a meaningful way and that they are representative of all the different um, all the different colors. Um, when you look at people today, and I always use my daughter as an example, who you know, she's African-American, she's got Indian friends, she's got Hispanic friends, she's got white friends, and they don't see that even as a thing. It doesn't, like, they don't, oh, she's my Hispanic friend. That doesn't even, you know, resonate with them. Like, they're just friends and they're going to do those things. So when you start talking to them, we, we can't talk race issues anymore. You know, you can't talk, well, there's a black candidate, so all the black people are going to, because they don't see candidates that way either. And so we really have to get back to, talking to them on the issue, and it's a challenge. And in both parties, I think, you know, are grasping that how do we find the new ways to reach these new voters and not just reach them, but get them to vote. Because the, the getting them to participate is always um, a, a little harder in the younger generations. So what strikes me as I'm listening to all of you is I know that the American population, I think a quarter of the population right now under the age of 18, about half the population under the age of 35. But then at the other end of this barbell in my mind is the second largest cohort of Americans, people over 55, and the preponderance of them over 65. So that younger group, especially the ones who are voter eligible 18 to 35, I think you said, Chuck, disproportionately minority, immigrant, uh, and higher levels of poverty. And at the other end, disproportionately white uh, and disproportionately benefiting, ironically, from social safety net programs that give them an economic base. Here I'm thinking Social Security, Medicare, and the like. But you can talk to one group with a set of messages that's quite different than the messages that's being heard by the other group, in part because of the analytics, in part because of targeted media. And the question then becomes, are we breaking apart, especially on that very sensitive subject of race, in these new campaign techniques? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think in the, at least in the API community, we're very multicultural and multi-generational. So in one household, you'll have grandma, mom, and, and the kids. So I think that 
issues that impact grandma and grandpa are going to have an impact on the kids. So I think that you can have the similar message that this candidate will, you know, kill Medicare if you vote for them. And that's something that could resonate with the younger voter, but it must be in a way that is communicated to them through Snapchat or whatever, using the medium that they use to get information. And just being where voters are for the API community, be going out to the communities. I think in every community where there are APIs, there is the Asian American, um, uh, Asian American grocery stores or the places where people congregate on the weekends to get their groceries. There's um, churches, there's other places, community groups. So there are opportunities to actually talk to these um, multi multi-generational families. Um, so I think that there is... Well, let me interrupt. So, but if I'm talking, given what Camila was saying, like if I'm talking to the younger people in your community and they're saying, hey, you know what, I have friends of all races, uh, yeah. you know, backgrounds, etc. doesn't matter to me as much. But then mom or grandmom is like, no, you're Asian or you're <laughs> Filipino, Cambodian, Chinese, and we have to stick together. And what is it with all these people you associate? Right. But that's not the way we vote. These are not, you know, it becomes more tribal at some level for the older people versus the young people. Am I wrong or what do you well, say? I, I think if, you know, you look at the issues that at least APIs care about, I think one, you know, if you identify and the issues are the economy, health care, they don't, immigration even is kind of lower. But I think one issue that's sort of underlying is kind of being included, being part of American, being seen as American. So when I talk to my almost 15-year-old daughter, she doesn't see life in terms of this is my African-American friend, this is my Latino friend. She does see we're just all friends, and it's about fairness. And I think if you can communicate on those terms, that's what they see. Right, but does she it. say to you, Mom... Why are you doing all these yeah, things? Yeah, you're always talking about Asian people. Um, <laughs> she might, but she, I think she's proud of her ethnicity. It's something that I grew up with uh, teaching her why you know, who, our history, how we came, my father came to this country, what we, what we struggled with, what we came with nothing, and now you know, we're, we're doing okay, but that there are still people in the family, people in our community that are struggling. So I think that, that she does see herself in other people that we, we meet and that they are encountering issues, whether it's discrimination, poverty, immigration struggle. David? You know, one thing I've learned over a lifetime of journalism, I'm still under 35. <laughs> <laughs> still young. I'm you look marvelous. I, marvelous. Have, I, have, I have one of those aging diseases. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, is that, you know, we, we talk about, we, we look at cross tabs, we look at polls when we sit here, uh, and we think African Americans are going this way, young people are going that way, blah, blah, blah. And then you go out to a rally and you meet somebody, and it's a lesbian, Jewish, black, Brett Baer fan who's voting for Trump. Yeah. Like, people are always more unpredictable than you think they are. Uh, and that's because we all have multiple identities and multiple, we're multiple people, we're plural. Uh, and one of the problems with politics is that we, so micro-target, we elicit the, the identity we want to elicit. And the identity that we identify with is the identity that happens to be most elicited or most under threat at that moment. And if you as a politician can make people feel under threat then you'll get that identity. You'll reduce them to a single story. And that, to me, is one of the tricks of the trade, frankly. But well, wait a second. And I think, you know, so I think I'll betray my own feelings here that Trump plays to fears and anxieties quite effectively. But is it the case that Obama was trying to be more hope and change, the inspirational, aspirational vision? Or is that unfair to Trump? 
Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think, especially the 08 campaign, it was an integrationist campaign. And I think Obama had the right message, which is, the phrase is, uh, roots down, walls down. You're in your community, you roots into your community. We're not asking for colorblindness, we're not asking for blandness. But you, you are in your community, but you're also bridging to another community. And Obama never met a problem he didn't want to transcend. He was always, yeah, on this side, on that side, on this side. And frankly, I think that's the right mentality. But I see a lot less of that. I see but does that, does that get you to vote? Because what, you, what I'm hearing is that what gets you to vote is when you, your identity is under threat or you're feeling fearful. Uh, right. I think you mobilize passion by reducing people to a single story and mobilizing them around that identity. I'm just, it's not my job to get people to vote. It's my job to try to bring the, you know, do, tell a national narrative that we can all believe in so we're still one country. But the fear is exactly what drives people. And, the, the, and to your point is that nobody, and, and I think we're kind of fooling each other if we don't tell the truth, and I think this will come out probably more in question and answer, is that the dual, the dual identity is absolute. For all the social media fellows who we recognized earlier, if you follow me on social media, you'll see two hashtags. You'll see brown consultants matter all the time because I'm fighting for diversity because I think that there are no people of color in the room so that we make huge mistakes in how we run these campaigns or the parties. The second will be, tie me back to the reason I talk, is I sound like an old white man when I speak, but I couldn't be more brown and look Latino. So my other hashtag is Mexican redneck because I grew up <laughs> in a very rural part of East Texas. You know I'm leaving from this conference to go to New Orleans to go fishing because that's the other half of me, right? But I don't feel like the redneck part of me is under attack lately. I do feel like the Mexican part of me and my family being from Guanajuato, Mexico, and my immigrant roots and the things that I perceive as a, as a challenge, right? So that motivates me, and I see it as a motivational factor because I don't get hired. That's the problem, to, to preach fairness and to talk about equality, even though I do on my own times. People hire me because of my strategy to win elections or to pass a bill or to not pass a bill based off of me putting grassroots pressure on a politician. And you put pressure on them by going into a community and eliciting fear, which could be good or bad on the way I'm doing it. That's the reason I question sometimes of, am I making this worse on social media because I think that that person is bad because they took away DACA to somebody who I love who is my staff, Luis, right? And then I say, do you want your children to be like Luis and to have to live in this fear of not knowing where, what's going to happen to their status after October? That's very personal to a Latino. That's very personal to somebody. Whether they came here legally or unlegally or however you want to categorize that, at the end of the day, I use it to open up a wound. And then I salt in minimum wage. I salt in the price of college. I salt in all the issues. I've already opened the wound with the immigration and the way you talk about Latinos or Mexicans being all one way. But now I've got your attention because I've hurt you. And now I go, and on top of that, don't you think your college is a little too expensive? Don't you think you should make a dollar more an hour? Don't you think that we should have Social Security for your grandmother? Like, that's how, that's how modern campaigns are run. The problem is, is there's nothing but a bunch of rich, white, straight consultants in the room making all those decisions. So the other half of this, Camila, would be people saying, well, so if you are appealing to Republican voters, disproportionately white, older American voters, the way that you open that wound is to speak of the threat of increasing numbers of minorities, immigrants, rising power of these aggressive women. Is that fair? No, I don't think that's fair. Okay. I, I think you, but I do agree in that you do, 
people take more action when there is an element of fear of something's going to be taken away from me. So I got to fight to keep it and hold on to it, right. whatever that is. And not just politics. That's just, I think, in life, you know. Um, and, and so I, I think in finding those pieces that get people to activate and take action is important. Um, and I think sometimes as Republicans, we don't do the best job at that. We don't do the best job at finding those issues that are truly, truly important that, like you said, it's going to make you take that extra action to go out and participate or organize around that. Um, but, you know, at the same, t- same time, you're talking about, hey, like here in this country, we want to take away your Second Amendment. Do people know what the Second Amendment is and what, what does that lead to later? You know, um, I, I, we, we can go down the rabbit hole or not, but, like, when you look at, like, the, the school violence things, it's terrible. It's terrible that it's happening in these communities. But I can say in the black community, in the urban city, guns are no longer an issue like that anymore because there's security systems in place at the schools. You walk through a metal detector. So is it time that we start to – is it really the Second Amendment that's the problem and changing gun laws, or is it, like, we need to – as a community step up and make some changes. I wonder if it's, if I could just quickly, I wonder if it's empirically true that fear does mobilize more than hope. As I run through political campaigns, the Obama campaign mobilized a lot of people in 08. Reagan, Hubert Humphrey, John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. I could think of a lot of pretty hopeful campaigns that were super effective as mobilization. Because they were national races. Have you seen a congressional race run on hope? Yeah. You don't yeah. see congressmen, they run against total fear and hate. Yeah. And okay. Senate campaigns. I think at a presidential level, you can touch because you become, not to jump in here, but right. because it's such a national thing, you get the information, whether you're on TV or not, because it's, it's Donald Trump, right. it's Barack Obama, it's Humphreys, it's something yeah. huge, right? So I think you can inspire on a national level, but I don't think the local races from, from that down are done that way. And Barack Obama, I mean, that's a major thing for so many people. That's like our country for civil rights. Like we, we got to this place where we were able to elevate and vote for a black person to have a black president that in itself is like a movement of of sorts you know so i i think that that i won't say it's an anomaly because i do look forward to having many more african americans running for president and becoming the nominee but i think that that's not necessarily the same when you look at running um fear versus not it's aspen ideas to go thanks for listening We're reaching back into the AITG archives to bring your attention to an episode about how to survive our faster future. In our increasingly complex and volatile world, how can we confidently navigate? MIT Media Lab Director Joey Ito says you must be nimble and alert. A lot of managing the future is you realize that you can't command and control from the top or from the center anymore. You really need to be able to to respond to things coming up. Find a link to the episode in our show notes. You can listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's the rest of today's show. Juan Williams. Let me open it up to the audience. Let me start here on the right. Uh, Yes, to Irene and and to Camilla. Uh, What are your two groups doing particularly to make sure that the 2020 census that's coming up, and we're very concerned about how those... Uh, labels and how the, how it's written. What are you two doing in your groups to make sure that uh, people are accurately counted? The first thing that we're doing is opposing, um, including the citizenship question on the census, because families that come from diverse immigration backgrounds will, may not want to fill out the census form if we have to answer whether they're a citizen or not. So we believe that in the API community, Latino and other immigrant communities, that if that question is on the census, that we will undercount 
minorities or diverse communities on the census, and that will you know, obviously impact redistricting, federal funding will have a huge impact. So we are trying to fight that in initially, and then if, you know, once the census is uh, available, we'll make sure that our communities are participating um, in the census to make sure we're counted. Um, good morning. I know that we'll probably all hear your opinions on some Sunday political show, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts about the Tuesday primaries and how specifically race and gender has played out in these last week of um, people that have won their primaries and or forcing runoffs. So I guess you're interested in the governor's race in Georgia? Absolutely. <laughs> that would be one. That would be one. Kentucky? Kentucky, uh, yeah. So anybody? I'll tell you that for the first time in American history, there were 309 women running for Congress uh, who have all raised over $5,000. So they're real, and they were very real. And I think that I've, I started my campaign, I've started my career working for a strong woman uh, in Ann Richards, and uh, I've never seen so many women, because of a, an election, take such an active role. They've always been the bedrock and the backbone of our political uh, process within the Democrats. There'll be a bunch of white guys running the campaigns, but it's a bunch of women doing the work. Both sides. Both That's sides. both sides. At least on my side. I can't speak to the Republican side. And normally it's a woman of color who's really running stuff. I'll just leave it at that. In Georgia, uh, I think that there's going to be a test, and I'm, you know, love to hear your point on it because I've done work. I worked on the Alabama special election that we won just a few months ago, uh, and we switched two counties where the colleges were from plus 18 Trump to plus 21 for the Democrat, and that's because we went in and used digital radio, did a lot of new things, and they hired us. So. A, we're a good consulting firm, but B, we went in and ran a cultural, competent message and delivered it in the way that people were consuming it, right? Now, if they will do that, and I think Stacy, in what she can do in motivating people, and people being not just brown or black people in Georgia, is that she does have a message. I was defending her yesterday on Fox when they said, can a woman that's that far to the left, and because people are going to want to categorize her as being a black woman from the left. I think that it's going to be an experiment in our democracy in an off-year election because the key to winning that is can you motivate, and whether you use hope or fear, whichever one, to have people who aren't participating in the process to show up because if they don't, there's no way she wins. But she has inspired. The Democratic turnout doubled in the primary. Does that mean the general will? That's an unknown, and if a consultant tries to tell you that, it's going to be a lie. But if you go out and talk to them and they don't show up, then you have to go back and reformat how you're doing it. So I think the biggest thing that's changing is in what I learned on Tuesday with Amy McGrath in Kentucky, with Liz in Texas, with Asian-American woman in Texas 23, Ortiz Jones. Yeah, Jones. Like there's a lot of the face of the parties on both sides are actually changing. But within the Democrats, the year of the woman is real. I guess. Oh, oh, no, I was just going oh, to mention that in, in Georgia, there was actually the first Bangladeshi American who was elected to the Senate. And then um, in a runoff in um, Georgia 7, there, David Kim is in the runoff for the Democratic primary. And then, of course, in Texas, Gina Ortiz-Jones for Congress and Sri uh, Kulkarni is also. That Sri guy's got an amazing yeah. consultant, by the way. Yeah, and he's <laughs> an amazing candidate. So <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> I think for me, it's, it's, it's still, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier, it's exciting to see so many people of different races and different colors, like, being active and engaging and, and running and, and, and winning nominations. That, that's huge for both parties, and it's important that we have that in both parties because, as we talked about earlier, our country is changing, and it doesn't look the same. And I think when you look at the Georgia race, it, it will be interesting to, to watch and study because, you know, I'm from Ohio. We had Kim Blackwell run for governor in, in Ohio. Um, unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. So to see um, who will support and how they will support a candidate is very interesting to me. You know, I hope that... 
we don't just support someone because of their skin color, but that we really take the time to look at where do they stand on the issues, because I think on her, her stance on some of the issues are extremely left. She's running as a Democrat. She's not running as a Republican. So she is a lot more liberal on some of the issues. So will our community take the time to, to really learn about her and what she's wanting to do and what, and what she sees for the future versus the Republican candidate and what they want to do for, for the community? Does this break down as a tribal contest at the voting booth, Dave? Not necessarily. I mean, to me, the big shock was how much she won by. She won by 55 points. Uh, that suggests like a, that's something. That's insignificant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, one of the things, there's underlying polling within the Democratic Party. Um, do you think racism is structural or individual? And there's been a sharp shift among Democratic voters. No, it's a structural problem. It's not an individual problem. So the party is becoming more, I don't know what, what you would say it, but more something about, about racial issues. Even Obama pushed away immigration as an issue. And I think if the Republicans have decided, which I think they have, that the future of America is in 72-year-old white males in Tampa, why shouldn't the Democratic Party say, no, we'll go with the other groups? Uh, and so I think they've made that decision. I personally... I disagree with that. I, I thought you might. <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I think the only downside for Democrats is if they don't combine it with some sort of universal message. If it turns into strictly group against group, pure multiculturalism, I don't think that's a good message. But you've combined that energy with, yeah, we have a dream for all of America. To me, it seems like a total winner. But you... Yeah, I completely disagree with that. And we're seeing it, you know, it it just kind of even off the top of my head, North Carolina, we have six African-American Republicans running for state house and Senate. That's going to change the makeup of what's going on. So I don't think that, and we're supporting those candidates, and we're going to have white people, black people, Hispanic people of all colors voting for them. So I don't think that we've said that this is our niche. I think both parties have, like, what is their base, right? Like, well, you have to have that 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 base of what, you know, uh, using the data and that older population that we know is voting for us. Like, we know... We have to communicate with those, but at the same time, like if you stop communicating and trying to bring in others, you lose. So, like to say that we only focus on this is incorrect. Next question, Fred Bonick from the Daily Ripple. Um, I had the honor of being at Netroots Nation in 2015 when Black Lives Matter heckled Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley. I was at the Women's March. I was at the March for Our Lives, and I, the one thing I noticed when you were saying about fear was these were all about fear, and maybe the next. Um, Maybe the question that will rouse people again would be the fear of loss of democracy. And since you brought it up, I'm also a gold star dad. I lost a son in 2010 in Afghanistan. I have three other, I have three other kids serving, and I think we should all be on our knees personally until there's equal justice under law or take the sign off the front of the Supreme Court. So the, what was the question? <laughs> the question was, Will the thing that will drive um, people back out again, youth, all people all together, will be the fear of loss of democracy? Loss of democracy. So like people who would think that Trump is taking away our democracy? Anyone want to come on? I think certain voters get that on each side. I think that we haven't done a very good job in our school system, even explaining what democracy truly is because they've had it so easy for so long. Right? Like I've got a grown kid who's got kids, right? I'm a 35-year-old grandfather, but anyway, <laughs> um, he don't get it, and I don't want to judge it off of your kids who absolutely get it. They're serving our country, and they've given me the right to be able to get up here and speak. But most of American kids, most of American youth, because our school systems are so bad, 
and, and either that or they've, never, they've not had that challenge of that next generation of World War II or the next thing of where public services or when Kendi said we must go serve if you're going to do this. Can we have dreams and aspirations, right? You take that, which is not a standalone, and then go that we never go talk to them because we never communicate with them on their level, then it's just kind of an ongoing, it's not an absolute brother, but there's a, 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 a conglomeration of, there's certain people who do get the democracy piece. I get it. Older voters get it. Luckily, they're the ones who are voting. And it really inspires people on both sides. But I think that there's a lot of difficulties within the youth movement. Uh, I think the first hope, a glimmer of hope that I've had is this whole gun issue with the kids in Florida, other kids. That's inspired me. That's inspired me that they will do something, whether it's the Second Amendment or whether it's more security, whatever it is. I don't care. I just love to see them getting involved. I love to see them saying that this is we can when they're registering people to vote and saying, I don't care who you vote for, but vote for somebody's going to stand with us. Like those are all things that remind me of how this great democracy started to begin with. Irene, let me let me just reinterpret a little bit of that question, yeah. because we're going into the midterms. Turnout is always critical. What you know is historically very low rate of turnout in midterm elections and specifically low turnout among minority groups. Um, and I'm thinking what goes on in your community. Is it the case that they appreciate democracy or say, oh, if that's the case, why don't they turn out? Right. I'm. I work with the Asian American Action Fund, which just teamed up with Congresswoman Chu and um, Congresswoman Meng and others to put a, cl a clearinghouse together where Asian Americans who are interested in politics can go to one place and find information about whether they're uh, Indian American, whether they're young Filipino American, they can find information on how to get plugged in. Um, I think that... Um, that there is a challenge in the API community to get people to vote, but I think they do want to be involved. I think, as I said, you know, we're having our moment now. One way we have seen to motivate Asian Americans to get out to vote is to have candidates that look like them run for office. And we have seen there are 50 Asian Americans running for Congress this time, which is mind-boggling. Um, there's 18 Asian Americans uh, members of Congress right now. A few years ago, there were only you know a handful. So. That really gets the Asian American community out, as well as, like I said, these investments. If they see people who look like them, who talk to them where they are, talk about their concerns and their fears and their hopes. I mean, Asian American Pacific Islanders and many immigrants come to this country because of hope. But if they feel like those opportunities are restricted because of what's going on in our country, then that will motivate them to vote. It is kind of fear, but at the same time, it's they left everything that they knew and loved and you know, to come to this country for opportunities for themselves and their children, and if they see that, that those opportunities are closing up because of the kind of country that we have right now, then I think that will motivate them to vote. Next question. Hi, um, my name is Ola. I'm one of the social media ambassadors, and my question is about the intersection of race and disability. Disabled Americans are the largest minority in the United States, and the intersection of race is that 50% of police killings are of those with disabilities. So it has everything to do with race. It has everything to do with disability. So what's what's being done by you, your firms, or you know, you write for the in my times. I know <laughs> journalism is, is is supposed to be independent, but what is being done to get out the disability? disabled vote, to bring disabled candidates to the forefront because we are here and no one notices us. And sorry, second question is for community. Well, hang on, hang on. We'll do one at a time. But uh, I was uh, surprised by what you said. 50% of the people who are abused by police are disabled. Is that what you said? Killed by the police. Killed. 50%. And what kind of disability are you talking about? We're talking about physical. We're talking. I'm talking about mental as well. Oh, mental. They might have mental issues. And people who are disabled physically, I have met, there's a black man's, de, there's a black 
um, deaf man's guide to dealing with the police because I, I can't hear your commands. You can shoot me. I see. So deaf people mentally. But so when you said disabled, I was thinking more like you're in a wheelchair. That kind, but that's not what you're necessarily talking about. I am. People with cerebral palsy, um, black men, men of color who limp, they get arrested and ticketed for um, intoxication. So people with physical disabilities, we are abused. Okay. Anybody have a thought on this? I've spoken on this subject before because I think you're on to something very important. And I don't, it's, it's not to be brushed away. I've spoke that, that we don't highlight the most vulnerable among us because we take advantage of the most vulnerable among us, right? In the statute, people that are sitting here right now, from what you've said, have been like, oh, that makes sense because somebody has something wrong with them mentally. They may not be acting totally normal. Somebody with a limp in the wrong neighborhood with a certain kind of cop and a certain kind of an atmosphere, we see that all the time. The problem is, is that it's never going to get fixed and nobody's ever going to give it the attention that it needs to get because people see that class of people as somebody who's not important to the government because they don't vote at high levels, they may not be registered to vote, and they're not a bigger, big enough part of the electorate. I think, though, in my 26 years of doing this, this is the third time in two years I've addressed this particular question because there are great, amazing activists like you who are calling and speaking truth to power, of saying, what will you do, Mr. Fancy Ballhead of Mexican on stage? What are you going to say about that with your tie on, right? Like, I have to sit here in this wheelchair and my sisters and brothers are getting killed by the police, right? This is what you do. You raise it at every opportunity. That means me, who's not in a wheelchair, will raise it and talk about the story that you told and will regurgitate your statistic, which makes sense to me. That gives me an aha moment. And I think that's how all of these movements have started, because you have to highlight those movements where people have that aha moment, where you're not that forgotten class of people like lots of other people in your same positions has become. And I, and I applaud you for that. I just want to mention um, Senator Tammy Duckworth, obviously, is a hero, multi, multiple identities, a mom, <laughs> one, um, but obviously a, a hero um, in the Senate. Um, but I've actually been really interested in this issue, and I'm trying to get more into it. But as you know, the proposal out there is that um, there will be work requirements for individuals to get Medicaid in many states. Well, for people who are disabled, that's going to be really hard for them. So are they not going to get Medicaid because they have some disability that will prevent them from work? And I understand that there is a table getting to, you know, that there has been a table that the disability advocates are getting together to fight that. But I, I think that, um, so I'm not talking about APIs, I'm talking more generally, um, that I think that the disability community needs to speak up on so many levels, as you said, you know, police brutality, but also in this case, um, making sure that they have the health insurance that they need. And I'll just say it too, like I agree, like the, the being there. Um, I worked for Governor Bush um, a while ago when he was governor in the state of Florida, and he did spend a lot of time meeting with, um, with people with disabilities during his campaign uh, going into office. And when he got into office, he actually um, pushed some legislation to change how things were being done in Florida. So I think it's important that not only on these forums on race, but like that you're there and present talking to candidates um, because those are the people who are going to put the legislation forward or are going to be making executive orders to, to change the, the way those things happen. Okay. You had another quick question. This one is for Camila in regards to your comment about immigration. I'm the daughter of two black immigrants. And my question really is, do you believe that there is that Trump is being accused of racism simply because of his immigration process or his comments on immigration? Um, as the party of Reagan, my father got amnesty from Ronald Reagan. So I'm the child of two formerly undocumented immigrants, now citizens. We... <laughs> 
we are ups- we are upset because he tells us we're never going to go back to our huts in Africa. It has very little to do with the process. So do you sincerely believe that he is not a racist? I do believe he's not a racist. Um, he's doing a lot more for our communities. He's really pushing legislation. The policies coming out of the administration would speak differently. I think it's one thing for somebody to say something, and the second, it's different to look at somebody's actions. And the actions that the administration is pushing forward it speaks differently. Juan Williams is a political analyst for Fox News. He wrote the book Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965. Camilla Prince is National Director of African American Engagement for the RNC, and Chuck Rocha is President of Solidarity Strategies. Irene Bueno co-founded Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and David Brooks writes for the New York Times. He's also an Executive Director at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.